Hello. This is a house on Valencia Street, and I'll be your host. I use explicit language. Topics of conversation will include ghosts, paranormal, psychic ability, uh, living in a rural or a somewhat small town in the east side of Washington State, agricultural mostly. Um, let's see, a couple good colleges, a couple good private colleges here and there, and some a couple state, one, at least one state college that I attended my freshman year. Um, <laughs> oh, we're going to be talking about some truth and taking up space just like everybody else, and that's going to include topics of domestic violence, incest, rape, uh, suicide, and murder. Uh, these are things that uh, I experienced either around me or within my family uh, while growing up in Walla Walla, Walla Walla, Washington. Um, and uh, let's see, Buddhism, agnosticism, atheism, um, matters of spirit, uh, the afterlife, um, ethical behavior. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Uh, foster care, emancipation, uh, recovery, willful education, empathy, kink, BDSM, uh, consent, yeah. Um, <laughs> gender, race, and socioeconomic demographic categories and how people are treated uh, when you belong in those by others. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good start. Um, a lot of these topics can be kind of intense and, uh, you might need to pause and kind of go, maybe I, I'm not quite in the mood for that, or maybe I need to go do something else, what have you. Uh, and that's okay. You got options. I like people choosing and being self-aware enough to make decisions, right? Cause you got decisions you can make and you got choices to make. Maybe you don't even know about yet. Sometimes it takes some education to get to know that real simple things are options for you um, once you understand their options for you. And sometimes you got to be around people that execute those actions in order to see in that context that they are appropriate, right? And we all have different families. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's see what else. Uh, yeah. Uh, the haunted house, the house on Valencia street is a place I grew up from being a child getting into puberty and, uh, the house itself was haunted and it's the most haunted location I've lived in. I've had a haunted apartment. I lived in, uh, the court side apartments that Leona lived there. Um, but, um, or the court apartments, I'll leave it like that. But, um, I was a kid. I didn't understand what was happening with some of this. And I felt these really strong foreboding things at this place. I was like, I don't understand what this is. And I'd have friends over and I actually had a couple of birthday parties at the house. And um, I remember it was always kind of like, I felt like it was the, what is that? The graveyard of broken, broken animals or broken stuffed toys. Is that the toy, toy story? I can't remember which movie that's in. Um, where there's, you know, where all the broken toys go to live. <laughs> Now that's just me thinking about my family. My friends were not that, but I was, I felt that way. And then I'd ask people to come over and, and well, I had at least three or four birthday parties where several people came, you know, but, um, it was always kind of bittersweet because we were also in the context of uh, mom trying to provide stability in a context where she didn't, she wasn't being offered fairness and safety. Right. So, uh, let's see. So I talk about the haunted house and also about the fact that, uh, my, Everybody in my family is incest and rape survivors. Uh, everybody, unless they married in. 
Um, so that means four sisters. Um, my dad had nine children from three wives. He liked to procreate children and then abandon them. He did that repeatedly. Uh, so, uh, and to the, you know, one, one of his sons from another wife has schizophrenia. Another one, you know, she struggles with bipolar. Uh, one has a uh, disassociative identity disorder. Uh, I struggle with some depression. I'm a gambling addict. Uh, haven't gambled in over 10 years. Took some therapy and some work to get there. Um, and I was gambling to avoid my mama's death. But anyway, um, this location here at the house on Valencia Street is where we get to talk about what happened. And I get to honor my ancestors and my mama because my mama Darlene is what got me out of there alive. And some of it was, you know, how she taught me to love, right? And a big part of this podcast is loving my mom, who's been dead over 15 years, um, and who I think about every day. And is probably still my closest friend. I still talk to this person. I was actually going to lead in with some a uh, couple of observations she gave me last day or two here. But hey, let's go ahead and get the disclaimer crap out of the way. Um, these are triggering topics. Uh, you might need some mental health support. Um, if mental health things are kicking up from you, I want you to use your discernment, use your discernment and go see a professional therapist or psychologist, someone who's board certified, someone who's got the education to do a little work here. Now keep in mind, you might need to shop for that mental health a practitioner or a therapist. I would say one out of four, one out of five of these people, they go into therapy and psychology because they have mental health issues themselves themselves. Uh, for example, of the four daughters in my family, the eldest is a mental health practitioner. However, she works in a mm, state or mm, how would one say social work capacity. She targets outside of her socioeconomic demographic. And that's where she does control and power dynamic stuff using the construct of this government agency to provide mental health help. And I pray I pray on a regular basis for the people she is practitioner with because uh, I've got one sister who says that particular sister is one of her chief abusers. Uh, she's also one of my chief abusers. <laughs> that's the eldest. I don't know if I've got a name for her. I called her the eldest. I think I'll just call her the eldest. I think that's what I've I leaned on her. But the thing is, she's the Stepford wife. Who the hell am I working her inventory? Um, I could adjust. I wanted to say that better. Give me a second. I got to calibrate here. Um, uh, hmm. it's important to have self-care enough to know when you need support. Okay. And I have support in networks, although I could do better. People with social anxiety disorder have to work at it some. Yeah. Um, although be careful in that practitioners sometimes get a second opinion. If you're confused, you're going to be in a vulnerable place. And sometimes the wrong practitioner can do years and years of damage that you're going to have to unpack and reheal and then get back to your work. Okay, so be self-aware enough to figure it out and understand sometimes you got to discern between are they asking me to do work here that maybe I'm responsible for or are they asking you to do something that's inappropriate and a control power dynamic thing that only serves them and does not serve you. That's going to take some time to decipher or um, discern. Right. So anyway, the point being you're worth it. And y'all deserve support and go to a, uh, go to a professional if mental health stuff's kicking up for you. That is not me. Okay. I recognize that this is one case study, one person's perspective. And my goal is to share with other people out there that was like me, like my foster sisters, half of them were dead by the time I was 30. Okay. And I'm still in touch with one or two of them. Um, although after 30, 40 years, it's like, we sometimes don't know how to talk to each other because, uh, 
we come from very different families or we survive what we did and maybe just saying, I recognize you're still alive and, and that's enough, right? With one of my foster sisters, right? So anyway, so I want to make sure that you're taken care of. Also, there's, you ain't got money because socioeconomic demographics is a big one. We don't really talk about some. Classism exists. So um, there's options. There's 12-step groups. Those are free. You can listen to those on the phone. You can go on a Zoom conference and, and exchange numbers there. Be careful, though, because predators like to hang out in those places. Those are target-rich environments for predation. So a lot of times you're going to trade off, if you don't have the money, you're going to trade off access for some people that, see themselves as do-gooders, but they're usually controlling power dynamic people targeting a vulnerable demographic of people sometimes. Anyway, boy, that's a lot of stuff, isn't it? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Go see somebody if mental health stuff kicking up. I want, I want you safe, even from me, right? Now that gets also back to consent. You could choose. And a lot of times with consent, you got to verify not just once, but repeatedly, you know, as you go, because things change, you know, as you speak the truth, it changes. I've heard a philosopher say, so um, make sure to check in, you know, even with yourself, because sometimes we get dis disassociated and detached, don't we? Yeah. Um, all right. Let's see what's up next here. Yeah, so we're going to talk about ghosts and psychic ability, and we're going to talk about some experiences we actually had and I witnessed that a lot of people say, come on, you can't prove that. And I'm like, well, maybe science is a poor tool to evaluate psychic ability and spirit. Um, the concept of Mu. The Buddhists talk about the concept of Mu, where the tool does not understand what it is being applied to philosophically. or uh, So anyway, okay, what else we got to say? Hey! You know what? I got this website. It's called uh, anchor.fm forward slash MoMA, M-O-H-M-A-H. That was my nickname for my mama. We came up with that one. We had some weird kooky little nicknames. That was one of them. Um, you can go to that website. And you can take a look at all the writing I got there. I take extensive notes. Sometimes I can just dive in and it's a book report. Sometimes I just can't even deal with it and producing the podcast all I got. So there you go. Uh, but there's more details and notes. Um, I try to be as concise. I usually get about 70 to 80% of the references. I sometimes miss a couple and um, I do my best. And sometimes I make mistakes and try to, you know, get back up and correct things and apologize if necessary and make amends. So, okay, what else? Oh, we talk about 12 step here too. But anyway, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash MoMA, check out all the paws and the notes and they're there. You could also do some uh, donations there. There's some options for like a five buck a month, 10 buck a month. I'm thinking about getting some Patreon and stuff like that, but I want to deal with some of the legality stuff and make sure I've got my concept protected and stuff before I start building business stuff. And I'm, I'm trying to find an accountant who's really good with, uh, uh, independent contractors, which is a little bit of a challenge. So, all right. So anything else? I think that's about it. Let's dive on in. Hey, oh, we're swimming in it. Woo. Okay. It is uh, July 30th, 2022. Very hot. It's been hundred degree days and in the Pacific Northwest, you don't usually use air conditioner, kind of like in the UK, how everybody's melting over there right now because they don't need air conditioner. They don't need air conditioning typically. Plus, it takes a lot of resources for air conditioning, right? So, um, so it's been really hot. And so I've been having to schedule my work, getting up at 5, 6 in the morning, work when it's cold. And then by the time it gets hot in the afternoons, turn down the computer when it gets about 80, 85 degrees in the house because you don't want to overheat your, your hardware because I know that one. <laughs> I've seen a lot of that in the past with my IT background. But um, 
So just, you know, you got to keep in mind to watch, you know, there's reasons they have heat sinks on central processors with uh, computers inside on their motherboards, you know, to detract the heat, right? You got to have fans, that type of thing inside of the PC. So I can't really be doing a lot of coding or work on my computer when it's, you know, 85, 90 degrees in the house because you can fry your fucking parts, right? So... <laughs> So it's been really exhausting. And uh, usually this time of year, it's about a part-time job. You know, you got to get up, open up, air the place out, close the place up, get a couple degrees cooler so you can handle it when it's 100 degrees outside in the afternoon, right? And did you know that actually one reason that heat is so exhausting is that it takes a lot for your body to air condition your own body. When it's really hot outside, the sweat is exhausting. You hear about siestas in some countries and um, it's around the equator, right? It's because it gets so hot in the afternoons, you can't do anything. And I'm experiencing that now going, oh, this is what the siesta thing is about. About three or four, you got to say, screw it. It's too damn hot to do anything. Then about seven, eight, when it cools down, you come back out of your cave and go, I can breathe again. So, all right. So that's what this week has been like. And I feel fried. I feel real rough. And I was meditating and trying to decide if I should try to get an hour or two more sleep because I hadn't been sleeping much at all. And I was praying about it in my meditation time this uh, morning. And I was kind of silent. Part of my meditation practice is uh, listening to silence. And uh, I was going, hey, Ma, I said, you know, I can't sleep. I can't figure out if I should get up, get a cup of coffee and go to work, you know, get some work done, make some money, that type of thing. Or if I should try to get a couple more hours sleep because this is when it's cold. And then I heard this faint little voice. Well, we used to just get up and play cards. <laughs> Mama. We should just get up, play cars, and we couldn't sleep. And uh, I was like, oh, that, that's the case. I was like, okay. Because we used to play cards a little bit, but we didn't. Um, I'd never done that specifically with my mom, just get up and play cards. Um, she used to play canasta, and she talked about pinochle and all kinds of stuff because she was with my dad, who loved to play cards. He's a gambling addict. Go figure. Uh, anyway, so he was more into the blackjack and the poker stuff because a lot of times there's more of a com competitive nature and an interactive nature with uh, poker playing. Uh, usually when you go to that table, it's going to be 95% one gender and you know what gender that's going to be. Um, also they have enough money to fund a gambling habit, right? So, uh, but anyway, my dad would play cards and, uh, my dad, from what I've heard, and my sister's told me this, the sister who has disassociative identity disorder, who's my full-blooded sister, um, dad would take her to the casino and put her in the women's bathroom. And she'd hide under, under the sink in the women's bathroom at the casino. And dad would play table games for six hours gambling while he left his five, six, seven-year-old daughter in a bathroom with a bunch of strangers for six hours. And that's my dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his family enabled him to do that financially. Although he did go to prison because he sold fence goods in his uh, pawn shop in California see and uh, my mama she was an honest person and you know she <laughs> there weren't a lot of options for women and actually I was going back to thinking about Peggy and Mad Men you know Mad Men the show I was actually just watching a couple of uh, clips because there was this one line that Don said to Peggy when she was in the hospital that I've been ruminating on this week um, it's also a spiritual concept of looking back from errors. Um, you want to be responsible. But there's this line where Don Draper says to Peggy when she's in the hospital after she has her baby. What, is she, what does he say? Um, 
this never happened. It's going to shock you how much this didn't happen. And then they just look at each other and they close the scene. So anyway, I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that, that's one example of complete and utter denial, right? It's also an example of uh, when you're a rape or incest survivor, a PTSD person like myself, uh, social anxiety disorder as well, uh, you spend a lot of time or you can't really choose. You, you've had so many really traumatic things happen to you that um, it pops up because it's your body and your flesh experienced it for years, right? And so uh, part of you, mm, part of the work of being a Buddhist or being self-actualized in my perception is being mentally aware, you know, as the Buddhists say that the mind is an unruly place and you want to hone your thoughts like the shaft of an arrow and the craftsman who makes arrows, craftsperson who makes arrows. Um, so, um, for me, I have to meditate a little bit every day, you know, otherwise, um, I just, I can just get in a funk and just focused on the row, 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 the kind of grindy stuff where it's just like, I can chew and chew and chew. So, um, so sometimes it's that balance of, okay, do I have amends to make? Was I out of place or self-centered and do I need to make amends here? That's, that's something that 12 step teaches us. I wasn't taught that in my family of origin. My mother learned that through 12 step through uh, Al-Anon and ACOA. And then I learned that behavior because she modeled it, right? Um, and after placing me in foster care, while she was struggling to try to figure out how to get out from under this guy who had his boot on her neck, which was Howard, who's a supervisor at the post office, who he was the person who controlled her money. <laughs> Okay, because she was in the post office and she couldn't get out. She had kids, you know, poverty, self-esteem, getting beat by this guy, you know, she was trapped, you know, and so she was struggling trying to figure out how to get out. And um, she eventually got out. We eventually got out, it took, but then we got to repair, we got to repair work. And that's the thing why um, Gabor Mate, the psychologist who I've mentioned previously, who focuses on trauma, healing and addiction and the correlation between addiction and early onset trauma with children. Uh, how early onset trauma creates addicts and how they're connected and how addiction really works as a compensation for lack a lot of times. So, um, but what was it he said? He was talking on the uh, uh, last day podcast and he said this really deep concept, which was, you know, we all have this, I think the person, the commentator was saying, hey, we all have the same parents, right? And he says, that's not a true statement. And, and she was like, well, go on. And he said, well, you know, um, when your oldest sister was born, your mother was two or three years younger and there were no other children. And for two years she had her mother alone and then you were born and then you experienced this dynamic. And then this next person was born. And the point being that when every child was born, the person, the parents were at a different developmental stage of growth and awareness or addiction or extramarital affair or integrity. Therefore, for example, of the four sisters in my family. Um, I was born 10 years, eight to 10 years outside of my sisters. They were all born, I was the bonus room, the caboose. And my mother was struggling with whether or not to have an abortion, which I would have understood given her context because six months after I was born, she left my dad because he created an untenable uh, lack of integrity environment where she could not be safe and her children could not be safe. So, um, but she was going through this process. Um, my sisters were all kind of tightly with each other. And then eight to 10 years later, I was born. So by the time I got to eight to 10, they were off in college, which meant my mother and I spent a lot of time alone. 
together. Well, we spent a lot of time together um, one-on-one that my other sister didn't get with my mother because of the birth order, right? And also my mother was just, you know, she was getting beaten to the hospital when I was a kid. Um, it was just a different kind of abuse. So when Gabor Mate said that really concise thought of um, your parent is at a different developmental stage when you're born than when your sister is born, right? Made a lot of sense to me. Um, one of my sisters of the four of us uh, would make snide jokes or snide comments about the little pact and the little club that my mom and I had, right? Although she didn't get to go to foster care. I did, you know, so <laughs> I don't know if that was bad or good. Both sides of the coin had some dark, dark parts, but, uh, um, mm, Mate offered this wisdom that, you know, my mother and I had a lot of time alone together and we became really good friends because of it in a lot of ways. We had the same kooky sense of humor. We had the same belief system and spirituality, um, past lives, psychic ability, um, joy, deep heart, deep dreamy heart, uh, you know, um, romantic. Um, so, uh, thank you for that wisdom, Gabor Mate. Um, let's see. Okay. About 20 minutes in. Do, 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 do. So, Mama's, mama's reference to her was when they couldn't sleep, they just get up, play cards. So that's an option for you. And I might do that. Although my, my little kismet is, um, I found this new game called 20, 2048. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's like a real simple tic-tac-toe kind of a thing where you try to make a really big, um, it's twos. You add twos together and fours together. It's kind of like Sudoku. But anyway, I just discovered that through one of these tests. I had to take it through a test that I was paid to do for a, a researcher. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. I want to play this some more. So that mindless chatter, uh, sometimes like in foster care, for example, one of the card games we'd play there was uh, there'd be six or seven of us and we all had our own deck of cards. And there was a solitaire game where seven or eight of you would be in a circle and you'd all be playing solitaire in a circle, but you'd start stacking like aces, hearts go here or sevens go here or sixes go there and they'd be either in suits or numbers or what have you and then the person who could clear their their solitaire first would win all the cards and then you'd have to sort all the cards again and then you'd start again and we do we do that like on a saturday night that was our big night we'd have card night <laughs> and they found a couple big games where you could have seven to eight decks of cards I'd be playing solitaire simultaneously. There was a name for it. I can't quite remember what it was, but it was like group solitaire. I'd never quite played it before or since, uh, but it was a good way to focus a bunch of kids or brats on some cards, you know, to get them so they're not, you know, stealing or running away or, you know, whatever the hell they might do or crying because they're traumatized and raped and beaten kids who are abandoned. That, that could also be, that's a valid reason to be mourning and grieving, right? Okay, so anyway, but it gave us something to focus on. Anyway, um, so my mama told me on spirit, if you can't sleep, just get up, play cards. That's what they used to do. Okay, um, let's see. Here we go. Here's a little Netflix update. Do, 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 do. Netflix update. Netflix update. Um, so I've watched some content this past week that I rather liked. Okay. The first is Shania Twain. There's a documentary on there about Shania Twain. Now, let me talk about Shania Twain just a little bit to give you a heads up on this. She's Canadian, and we know all kinds of stuff in the media, but just want to clarify this before I jump to the next point on Shania. She sold over 100 million, 100 million records, which makes her the best-selling female artist in country music history and one of the best-selling musical artists of all time, Shania Twain. You know, come on over. Remember that album? 
I mean, if you think about it, <laughs> they they released like 10 to 12 of the LPs. There weren't any B-sides on that album. Uh, for the young kids, uh, <laughs> a full-length album was about the size of 12 inches or what have you, big, big old album. And there'd be 12 to uh, 10 different uh, songs on the album. Well, they didn't release every one of them for a hit. So those would be called B-sides because when you get a 45, which is a smaller version of an LP, the other side, the B-side would be the one that wasn't released. And one of my favorites was uh, Olivia Newton-John had a song called Silvery Rain, Silvery Rain, which was B-side on Tied Up, which is one of her releases in the 80s, which was when I was in high school. Anyway, I could sing Silvery Rain over and over again because it was about the environmental problems with acid rain. And from an early get-go, as my sister Rachel Sophia calls me, St. Francis Christina, because I like to help animals and the environment stuff, so, um, Silvery Rain, I, even Walla Walla, I was like, there's something going on here. We're fucking over the earth. Uh, this is where we got to live. Uh, let's try to be aware. You know, at least that song with Olivia Newton-John gave me this environmental awareness in Walla Walla, like, heads up, there's some shit you got to pay attention to, right? Okay. So anyway, um... Shania Twain, a documentary. It's on uh, Netflix. One th observation I want to offer on that is, um, let's see. Uh, um, Shania Twain was very famous. I very much liked her music. Uh, I worked out a lot to her music. I danced a lot to her music when I was younger, two-step and all kinds of stuff, and also free form, and also, I mean, amazing music. And also, she did a lot of the editing on those videos. A lot of times, actually, I was listening to this documentary, the, the cinematographer, the director would film the stuff and then she'd say, you give me the raw product and then she edited the films. So when you're looking at like, uh, that don't impress me much. Is it that one? That don't, impre that don't impress that don't impress me much. Brad Pitt one. We talked about Brad Pitt. She's wearing that leopard outfit. Well, they talked about the design of that, uh, that uh, uh, video. And anyway, the thing that got me was that everybody knows about Mutt and Fred and her personal assistant having an affair and there was that whole kind of thing. But uh, beyond that, you know, one reason she went to overseas was she had more freedom and privacy because she wanted to have privacy and have a kid, that type of thing. But um, this is the thing I'll come away with this one. I heard Shania Twain have a comeback performance. Okay, and this was a couple years ago, and they have this big. They're like, "Oh, she's gonna have this huge performance here. She comes because she she had tours where she go to over 100 arenas all over the world internationally back when she was, you know, mega making the the most sales of those albums." Um, but she didn't sound very good. And I remember hearing her performance and going, she sounds lousy. I was actually, well, okay, that sounds judgmental. I apologize. I can say that better. Her voice sounded different. Her voice sounded different and it didn't, um, her, her music can be very, uh, demanding. Okay. Because I would sing it at karaoke and I'd sing it by myself a lot and my range may or may not match her range. So maybe I didn't sing hers work as much as I would like, as good as I would want to. But, um, her voice changed and I was like really surprised because I, I thought she was a very talented woman. I really liked her work and I was like, her voice sounds very different. Well, come to find out if you watch the documentary, she caught Lyme disease. She's riding her horses out in the country because she liked to ride horses out in the country and she caught tick bitter and she got Lyme disease. So um, that completely changed her voice. She had several vocal surgeries. So by the time I heard her at this later performance, she'd had several surgeries and Lyme disease. And she was a mature woman having gone through a divorce and a child. And, you know, and so it explained what I heard because I was sitting there going, 
she was such a consummate professional, the way she performed the skill. I mean, when she sings, it's like honey coming out of her voice. You ever heard her, uh, some of her other interviews where they would just be talking and she just kind of starts singing. This is a woman in her twenties and thirties singing and she, you know, it just comes out like velvet you know, you're just like, Oh my Lord, it's like an angel, you know? Anyway. Um, so she got Lyme's disease and that messed up her voice. And then she had to have several surgeries and her voice is now different. Kind of like Julie Andrews had to have some nodules on her vocal cords removed and then she couldn't sing like she used to, you know? So, um, anyway, uh, heads up on Shania Twain. The other one I'm going to refer to is uncoupled. If you're looking for sex in the city with the gay boys, Oh, snap, snap girl. That's the thing. Uncoupled. Um, I, it's kind of, it's what it is. It knows what it is. It's kind of like how I met your mother, but for gays. And also they're making all these references to things in uncoupled that I'm like going, you know, I know what they're talking about. Like he goes, Oh honey, God, I got back into poppers. I feel like I'm young again. <laughs> and you know, a hundred people may not know what that reference is. And I'm like, well, poppers are nitrous, nitro, nitrile, uh, M, M. Well, um, they make your body feel a rush and they're used with sex because it relaxes your sphincter. So gay men or people into kink and BDSM use poppers to relax their sphincter so they can gape. Too much information? Perhaps. I don't apply that to me. That's not something I'm into, but some people in the kink and BDSM community are, you know, so that's why, you know, your kink is not my kink. But, you know, when they're talking about poppers, like, oh, darling, I know what you're talking about. Anyway, so um, it's really nice to hear them talking about some gay subculture stuff, although it's very gendered. And they have a couple women that are in the show that are also talking. You know, there's this one case where this wealthy woman's talking to this uh, uh, real estate person who's the partner of um, uh, the lead actor, uh, Doogie Hauser, whose name is escaping me right now. Anyway, um, so they're just sitting there talking and, and they're saying, oh, well, my fantasy is this and my fantasy is that. And then the real estate broker, uh, who's uh, black skin, brown skin, she goes, um, yeah, but my in my movie, there's people who are black too. You know, she, <laughs> And then the wealthy, rich person goes, oh. <laughs> it was like... Oh yeah, it's this is a very white, white, white environment. All these wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people walking around. It's like, oh yeah, class. Oh yeah, race. Oh yeah, gender. Okay. So um, anyway, I'm running out of time, but uh... so it was kind of a acknowledgement that there was definitely uh, some uh, demographic categories where it was like, yep. Seems like there's a lot of white people. Seems like most people that got the money are of a particular gender, that type of stuff. Socioeconomic class. So anyway, um, Uncoupled, I liked it. It was fun. And I actually had to adjust my expectations because I was like, um, I wanted, I was like, this is just fodder. This is not reality. I am just going to be pretending I'm swimming around with these wealthy people that are in Manhattan and also, you know, with my the class issues, I was uncomfortable, but it was like, oh, this is kind of nice to go play over here for a little while in this world, you know. So there's a couple things where they're bringing up differences in gender and bias, which I really appreciate. Although sometimes uh, my perception of LGBTQIA, specifically gay male culture, um, can be very gendered. 
And depending on the person, um, it can be sometimes not very friendly to women, even though they say they're friendly to women. That's something I was thinking about recently with King King BDSM is that when it comes to feminization fantasy or men who want to be sissies, I have a friend who I'm talking to who I've known for a while through King King BDSM. We're talking about doing a service exchange possibly. I don't think it's going to work out, but uh, we're just kind of having a conversation. And he's going into feminization right now. So he likes to dress up... uh, in feminine clothes and just be around people. And it's a different part of his, he's identifying as bi-gendered. He's identifying, he's got two parts of himself. One's very kind of rogue, masculine military guy. And that's his real experience. And the other part of him is this soft little girl named Annie who likes to dress up and has um, uh, those little black, what do you have a name for him? Anyway, so we're talking, and we're just trying to figure out if we're going to be complimentary. He's not in, his his fetish isn't service work. I'm trying to find someone. There's plenty of, if you go into the kink of BDSM world, there's plenty of men that say they'll like to dress up in a little maid's costume and come over and clean your house. Okay. Although in 15 years or more checking out the scene, I haven't felt comfortable doing that. Further, uh, usually it's this concept of trying something on that's so different than what they are. And that's where we get into the bias or the power dynamic stuff that's maybe not consenting. So for example, when people try on being feminine uh, or when a gay man is a a cross-dresser or is a um, diva and their identity is a drag queen or is a um, person that could be a man when they want to be or can be a woman when they want to be. And isn't it fun that when I'm a woman, I'm extreme archetype and I'm over the top and I'm a cartoon and I'm unattractive and I'm attractive. And so sometimes the gender switch is used as a caveat for like, I don't want to own these parts of me as a man, but I will be this extreme negative part as a woman because it's not me. Right. Or people get into the scene. Um, I've read people talking about like right now, monkeypox is a big deal. Okay. But the thing is, it's almost exclusively bisexual and gay men. Okay. And it's excruciatingly painful. Um, I was listening to Dan Savage talking to a doctor. They had a special this week where he felt it was essential to get out of Dan Savage is a sex advice uh, uh, let's see what's it called, uh, the Savage Love Cast. Well, anyway, monkeypox, okay? And it's a big deal. We can't get the vaccinations for that, although it's a it's a kind of, it's a sexual orientation bias type of a thing, okay? Because it's gay men. It's gay men. And that's why it's like, there's people and doctors talking about that. We can't get any traction. We can't get people to talking about it because people are homophobic and they don't want to have, it's kind of hard to say that here's a pandemic or um, here's a disease that's spreading. I, I don't know if pandemic's the right word in that context, but um, here's a disease that's spreading, but nobody's talking about it. And here's where LGBTQIA bias is an issue. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm concerned about the gay men, you know, because, you know, I'm not going to judge you as long as consenting adults do things that are legal and everybody's over 18. Or if you're in a European country or another uh, continent, whatever the ages, the law states or stipulates. Right. So um, anywho, uh, LGBTQIA people. Hello. I'm one of you and um, I want you safe and I want us all educated. So, and actually, so if you want to find out more about that monkeypox thing, kick over to a uh, Savage Lovecast. Uh, it would be in this last week and this is 730, 2022 the dates today. Go check it out because that doctor who is one of the doctors, he's the, he talks about butt stuff. The doctor who's the guest on with Dan Savage this week talks about butt stuff. And so he's dealing with like, he's describing some of the pain these people are experiencing because all the bumps and things like that are happening where you're touched. So if you're going out and having casual sex, it's going to be rectums, it's going to be genitals. And 
I mean, some of the pain that he's talking about these people experiencing, I mean, they're just screaming in pain, you know? So anyway, oh, that's, wasn't that a great way to know, end this note on? I'd rather people be educated. I'd rather people be educated. Go, go, go to this doctor, go get this shot, go get this vaccine. If you can get it, here's how to inform yourself or just be celibate. You know, don't go to the glory hole and don't go to the nude beach, you know, to hook up, you know, don't go to the bathhouse to go hook up. Right. So, um, anyway, uh, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you being safe out there. Okay, so on Netflix, Uncoupled, and that Shania Twain documentary. Pretty damn good, if you ask me. Okay, I'm going to round out right now talking about how meditation has been my insurance. I was considering diving into autonomy as a concept in this pod because there's a lot of rich beauty in autonomy. And as a Buddhist, um, yeah, I'm not going to dive fully into this. I might wait till next time. I was trying to figure out how to make this entertaining while talking about some of the great masters in meditation, the bodhisattvas, that uh, bodhisattva is an um, enlightened being in Buddhism, um, how they got there. And mostly I was really feeling a lot of joy because Buddhism, I guess I'll kind of meander around into this, autonomy, huh? <laughs> um in several major cities in the United States, uh, over half of the population are people who are autonomous dwellers. They live alone. And our autonomous experience doesn't get documented or celebrated, rarely if ever, and there's a lot of joy to be had with it. A different way to think about that is we're taught to obtain things. We're taught to have uh, want a lot of money. For example, I have a brother-in-law, the coach, who uh, was very excited when I was working for that software company up north. Uh, and Bellevue Redmond. He was really excited for me when I was working for that hardware manufacturer that had a site with 10,000 employees here in the Willamette Valley where I was working for a couple years. Um, he would buy stock in the company, those companies that I worked for while I was in IT for 15 years, right? And then when I started going, this isn't working, and then mom died, and then I worked with the deaf and hearing impaired doing transcription for a couple years. And then I, you know, after 15 years of that, I was like, I got to do something different. Mom died, I don't give a shit. You know, so I was like, you know, I was like, I'm going to do something to contribute on top of all the service work, you know, so I'm going to do that. Well, anyway, that brother-in-law, the coach, didn't really uh, like me after that much, so much. He likes money. He's a good Catholic, according to his perspective. And um, he, can't, he couldn't relate to me because he, he gave value to money. He gave value to four or five houses. He gave value to that. And if I wasn't working with a, a name that was popular uh, I didn't have clout anymore. He was disappointed. See, my only value was that. Then I was interesting, right? So, and I might be misrepresenting that, although that's how I experienced it. And, um, that's what he did for years. So <laughs> the point being to him, he didn't see my new work as valuable because it didn't have money attached to it. Like when I was working for the deaf and hearing impaired after mom died, you know, um, for a couple years, I just, I could type fast. So I'd did that for two years. Um, I worked with a veteran and uh, went to a community. Uh, I worked with that particular veteran for a couple of years. And then he went to a private college that had their own uh, transcription for the deaf uh, team. But um, anywho, the point being, uh, it's work. It is work to focus that way. It is work to sit and meditate every day. It is work to be mindful. Although I may not value it the same way because I'm not getting paid what I was getting paid when I was working for those Fortune 100 companies, see, in the early part of my career. So I just was wanting to explore the concept of being alone and autonomy and how meditation can be really good insurance for when you're at a fork in the road and you got to make a decision. And I guess I'll round out with this. Um, 
I've been exploring dating the last, uh, well, I've kind of gotten back on this site and there were two or three people I was talking to and <clears throat> I finally ended up connecting with this one person. Um, he liked the name in this particular environment of Lucidius, Lucidius, which is Latin for lucid, right? And that's, I'm a sucker for Latin, let me tell you. So, it, <laughs> so he's talking, I'm like, oh, you like some Latin just because, hello. You know, so then we started talking and um, we kind of hit it off and he sent me his pictures and he looked like a rough kind of a Ryan Gosling. He looked like Ryan Gosling. And I've been meditating on my visualizations of like the notebook, although the notebook's problematic in and of itself, but I love that movie. My mama loved that movie. So we're just kind of, it's one of my vision board statements that this was something I might want. Somebody I argue with, or I got chemistry with, who is a little bit difficult, but it works and there's some problems, but we figure out how to love each other kind of thing. So um, I was talking with this fellow and he was charming as hell and intelligent as hell. And he'd gotten his Myers-Briggs. Uh, I'm like an INFJ. I'm a borderline EINFJ. And he was like an ENFJ. And we're like, oh, we're the same Myers-Briggs type. So we started talking and he knew what it was. And we were having all these conversations about kink and BDSM, but it wasn't a charge. He wasn't talking about sex. He was just acknowledging the categories, exactly what I needed. And we started talking and writing. It was going really well. And then there was this point at which um, he is a white man with money. Okay. He has plenty of money. So there was this point at which we were talking and I was really enjoying this, you know, rough Ryan Gosling guy. And um, it was like, I was noticing though, because of my education and training, I was like, he's talking about the type of house he wants to buy and we haven't even talked on the phone yet now that's a flag because um, um narcissistic people and people who are empathy disordered want to do a thing called future faking okay where they're going to present a fantasy that they want to build right and it's a fine line between just kind of getting some nuances versus i'm going to craft a fantasy in front of you and tell you i want this house i want it to have that i want this car i want it to be on a lake it will be like this and so they're telling you this fantasy from the get-go now that's a flag if they're going into long descriptions about their fantasies from hello they're replacing content and they're forcing a narrative potentially Okay, so I'm recognizing that while I'm talking to this person and going, oh, this is really feels good. This really feels like yummy. And if you're a narcissist, narcissist or um, self-focused like that or empathy disordered, um, they're very charming. They're very charismatic, although hollow, you know, and you don't know it yet, but you're going to find out. See, so <clears throat> what happened was we were talking and it was really feeling good. And then I started opening up and opening up. But sometimes I can overshare. Okay, and I recognize that. However, he's talking about the death of his mother, and we're doing this really intimate conversation. I think if you're dating these days, with the technology we have, it's really easy to overshare or overwrite. And then by the time you meet each other, you know everybody's intimate secrets, and it's a little awkward. It's like the balloon expands, and then it it becomes so heavy that it falls over on itself because there's no legs under it, you know, no roots to keep the tree grounded, right? So um, what happened was there was this turning point where we were talking and he told me in the past 36 hours about how he had lunch with this buddy of his, which, you know, it's COVID, so just be thoughtful. And then he was talking about taking his dog to the groomers. Well, he's got enough money to pay for grooming from someone. He can pay someone to clean his dog and he's doing it. Okay, that's telling me something. And then the next thing he says is, oh, I just arbitrarily get together with my neighbor. We just kind of started hanging out. We had this great visit. And then, so I'd written in this media letter and he'd written me this media letter. We were going back and forth. and um. Then what happened was we're just at this juncture where we're kind of going back and forth. And then he says, you know, um, 
I'm really feeling exhausted and wiped out. And um, I think I'll go ahead and reply to your le your letters tomorrow, your concerns tomorrow. Okay. Is that okay with you? And I paused because I was like, oh, you know, because part of me, it was a reasonable request. But here's the context clues. Okay. He's just described prioritizing a friend for lunch, prioritizing his neighbor just because he wanted to, prioritizing his dog and grooming his dog. And then he's informing me that after 36 hours and me listening to repeated texts talking about all these other people that are really important to him, he's telling me that he'll deal with my stuff tomorrow. Okay. And so part of me was like, I can go ahead and give that to him, right? The other part of me was like going, this is where my meditation practice was the insurance because I was in a state of how do I feel about that? I don't know how I feel about that. That's not what I want. And then I recognized what he did was this is a manipulation technique sometimes people will use and also narcissists or empathy disorders will use to uh, test how far they can push. They want to see how much you're going to give up your needs when you say I need this thing or I'm doing this thing uh, when they can deprioritize de you, right? Or just kind of devalue you or focus on the value of everything else and then go, I'll get to you later, right? Now, the thing is, he used pretty language to do it. But what it was, was a manipulation technique where someone makes a decision but they couch it in language that looks like a choice. So it went like this, you know, um, I've done this and this and this, and so I've been listening to him talk about all these things. It's like, you know, I, I'm really tired tonight and I just don't, you know, so um, I'm gonna go ahead and deal with your, your questions and stuff and I'll get to that tomorrow, all right? Is that all right with you? And I'll pause. He's not offering me a choice. He's made a decision and he's telling me what he's going to do. After taking my time to talk about all these other people, now he's gonna do this. And I paused because I was like, I don't know if I want that because if it had been a choice, it might've gone like this, you know, I'm really tired tonight. And, um, you know, we've been going back and forth and you've been reading my lengthy letters, right. And, and hearing about all these people that are in my life. And, and, um, so I'm really exhausted and that's a really big letter with some important concepts. I want to get to that tomorrow. Um, is that work for you? And if it doesn't, I, I could probably set aside 15 minutes tonight to focus on some conversation, although I'm tired. However, I could offer some time to connect with you. Yeah, that's an option. Otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and get to bed, although your needs are important to me. And even if it's just 15 minutes, I can make that a priority right now. That's a choice. He's offered me a choice if he would do that. That's not what he did, though. <laughs> he just said, I'm going to do it this way after I did this and this and this, and I'll get to you tomorrow, okay? And I just went, well, that has a feeling to it, I suppose. And then I kind of paused, and he goes, oh, no, did I upset you? I didn't mean to upset you. Again, he's talking about his perception versus the consequences because I needed something different. You know, after reading his stuff, his extensive stuff, I want about 15 minutes check-in, right? So uh, I paused and I was just present and just said, hey, you know, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. And I go like, go ahead and attend to your needs. I hear you. Um, I'm not, I'm unsure how to respond to that. And he goes, well, I understand. And thank you so much. I really appreciate you communicating clearly with me. And that's really great. And he's like, oh, I'm going to get right to that tomorrow. And then I never heard from him again. <laughs> So what I really would have appreciated from that person was, um, I've made a decision. I'm going to do this. I'm telling you that this is what's going to go happen. As opposed to, I'm presenting this like it's a choice, but it's not. Because I wasn't sure how I felt. And I needed a little room to figure out what I needed. And I, I didn't have the room to do that. Because with him, it was like, do it this way, after listening to all this other stuff. And if you don't, I'm out. Even though his language opposed his behavior. And that's what empathy disordered people do. And also, I, I really am grateful that in that moment, I kind of went, I recognize what he's doing. 
I don't know how I feel about that. And I should be able to pause and not know. And if I can't and he ends it, I'm not the issue there. He's forcing a narrative, right? So anyway, that happened this week. But in conclusion, why I'm really happy about it was I was in prayer mode and I was in God mode. I was dialed into what I felt and it didn't feel good. And I didn't accommodate him or codependently go, oh, you can do whatever you want because this juicy, yummy um, meditation space inside of me felt strong, strong enough to go, I don't know if that's going to fit, right? So the insurance was that I have been maintaining meditation for several months daily, and I dial into God or my version of God with Buddhism, and then I make decisions from there. It's like plugging in the vacuum cleaner before you vacuum. You can move the vacuum all over the place, but if you don't plug the vacuum cleaner in for the electricity, you ain't doing shit, right? So, and that's, an, I'm paraphrasing a Abraham Hicks concept. That's a, a little, and I'm, I'm being more salty about it though. But anyway, um, so you got to get plugged in, right? So I guess I'm grateful to spirit and God and really feeling good about building this relationship with myself more so. Um, in the next week or two, I want to kind of dig into autonomy. Um, I was looking at a National Geographic special uh, where they went and talked to a Buddhist nun who had been in isolation and retreat for 45 years. Um, I want to evaluate and talk more about autonomy and how good it is for you and how many, many religions um, give a particular gender or a particular class of person the option to be in retreat and how that's perceived of as a good thing. Um, in this National Geographic special where they went and visited the nun who had been in retreat for 45 years, um, many were saying, gosh, that's a wasted life. She hasn't been around people for 45 years and, you know, her monastery or her, they're bringing her food and, you know, accommodating her. But then another person observed, this person chose a path of life that brought National Geographic to their door in Tibet and millions of people have heard her message. Therefore, perhaps that was the ac accurate path to be on. Perhaps she carved the accurate path, right? It's all up to the whatevers, I suppose. But anyway, she talks about too, uh, let me see. The main meditation that she had was to liberate self through realization and then help other people with an open heart and open mind. She would spend a lot of time in meditation praying for people's uh, enlightenment and freedom, which I don't hear a lot of that in a lot of uh, mainstream religions, right? That's one reason Buddhism is fascinating to me even if it does have issues, right? So thank you very much for coming to the house on Valencia Street in this sweltering week where I am rough and raw and haven't been getting sleep, where I'm praying and meditating and my mother is telling me, you know, you can just get up, play cards. Although for me, it'd probably be free slot machines on Facebook. I like to get stoned and just kind of sit there and hit the button some. But anyway, um, we all have our little weird ways of kind of connecting or getting out of touch or into touch. Um, we're going to get off this uh, podcast. I'm going to open up the house and hope that I can swelter through a couple more hundred degree days without it, you know, air conditioning. And um, I want you to know you're never alone and that there's this rich life, this rich abundant life with God and spirit that keeps my heart um, full and feels love. And um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for your path. And I want you to be happy, and I'm praying for all of you out there. Here from the house on Valencia Street, I want you to know you're never alone. I ain't never going to be alone here at the house on Valencia Street. Sometimes it's, uh, it's whether you like it or not. Mm.